This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition and the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium. As part of our special COVID-19 vaccine confidence efforts, we're creating a series of podcast episodes that can be helpful to nurses at this time and the communities they serve. Nurses from around the country have been sharing their insights with us. And on this episode, Dr. Mariam Kaboral stevens is joining us to discuss what it means to be a trusted messenger. She'll also share what her vaccination rollout experience has been like so far in developing outreach efforts within Michigan's Asian and Arab American communities. Dr. Kaboral stevens is a nurse practitioner, researcher, and faculty member at Eastern Michigan University in the School of Nursing. She's also on the faculty at the university's Center for Health Disparities Innovations and Studies. As part of her involvement on a CDC REACH COVID-19 vaccination initiative, she and her team at the center are working to educate trusted messengers and increase awareness and vaccination among Asian and Arab American communities and the important role that community organizations can play in this process. Dr. Kaboral Stevens is also a member of the Philippine Nurses Association of Michigan, and we'll be hearing at the end of the episode from one of her colleagues, Reglita Laput, who's the current president of that organization. We'll also hear from Opiyemi Oguni. Opiyemi will talk to us about how she's addressed vaccine hesitancy at her hospital outside Houston, Texas, and what she's hearing from friends and family in Lagos, Nigeria, where she's from. But right now, let's turn to Mariam Kaboral stevens Dr. Kaboral stevens thank you so much for joining us on At the Core of Care. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So first, can you share what drew you to nursing, how you got into your current role at Eastern Michigan School of Nursing and at the Center for Health Disparities, Innovations and Studies? I grew up in the Philippines and being a nurse was not actually my first career choice. It was never actually in my radar at all. To me, nursing then was not a fashionable or one of those high-paying jobs, especially in the country. But when I was growing up, I'm always focused on graduating from one university in the Philippines, and that's the University of Santo Tomas. So when it was time to go register, the only two courses that were available was accounting and nursing. I wasn't going to go into accounting. I hated math. I mean, lo and behold, now I'm doing research. I had to learn statistics and start loving or liking statistics. I mean, how ironic is that right now? But the other program was nursing. So I got stuck in nursing. I mean, looking back at what happened, I don't know if it was fate that actually all those courses, all those programs were packed or I couldn't transfer because I don't think I would have liked any other career choice besides being a nurse. I do love being a nurse and I am proud to be a nurse where I am right now. So how did I end up in my current role with the Center for Health Disparities, Innovations and Studies at Eastern Michigan? Well, I moved to Michigan in 2015. I worked and lived in New York, in Brooklyn, New York, for 30 years. I actually 
love New York, but my husband's job had to be in Michigan. So against my decision, we have to move because I got to stay with him and follow him and, you know, be with him. I don't want that travel because we did it actually for a couple of years and it was actually a disaster for both of us. So I was like, okay, I had to make a decision. If you're going to stay in Michigan, I got to go to Michigan and find work there. And for some reason, there was something about Eastern Michigan University that was calling me. And it's been five years now since uh, I've been at Eastern Michigan. I love it there. And how I ended up with the Center for Health Disparity is that Dr. Su Inwu, who is the center director, actually, received a five-year CDC REACH in a collaborative agreement and REACH standing for Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health in 2017. So when she received the grant, she needed a program manager and communication lead for that REACH collaborative agreement. So she asked me if I'm interested and we're actually in our third year now with the CDC REACH project. And the CDC REACH initiative has been very eye-opening for me about what the community is all about. I wasn't involved with the Asian American groups in New York. I was involved mostly with the Black African minority groups in Brooklyn. But now it's totally an eye-opener for me, even from me being an Asian it's like, oh my gosh, I really need to learn a lot about the Asian culture. So it's been very fruitful and it's been very good for me. So as part of the vaccination rollout, can you tell us a bit about what your work has been like for you and obviously as part of your role with the CDC REACH COVID-19 initiative? We rolled out our COVID-19 vaccine in April and at first, it was actually a little bit difficult because people actually were all trying to get vaccinated during the initial rollout, and everybody was trying to go wherever or register wherever they can register. Even I had to register into three different registries in order for me to be on the schedule to get vaccinated. But the vaccination initiative by the CDC is actually about two or three things. It's about equipping trusted messengers in order to increase Asian Americans and Arab Americans' confidence and uptake of the COVID-19 vaccination, as well as for us to facilitate partnership between the community and the vaccine providers so that communities that are underserved will get the vaccine that they needed. And also, it's about communication. In order for us to increase confidence about COVID-19 vaccine, we got to increase the confidence of the community, not just the general public, but particularly within the underserved and the Asian and Arab Americans community. So we have so far we have rolled out or facilitated 10 mass vaccine clinics since we started in April. Also, a lot of the Asian Americans communities have worked with us and have collaborated and accepted us in setting up mass clinics in their community. The rollout, I believe, has been successful. 
and also the Arab Americans community, they do have what they call AXIS, which is Arab Community Center for Economics and Social Services. It is a specific service that's focused on Arab Americans, and they've been very much engaged in vaccinating their community. I've heard a couple of my students actually volunteered to give vaccination at a couple of their mass vaccine sites for that. So you are the trusted messenger, right? You're you're building this for the Asian and Arab American community in Michigan. What um, previous knowledge are you drawing from? What best practices? And are there ways that you're also innovating at this time and, and working with these partners? When we talk about vaccine confidence, we also have to look at why are they hesitant to take the vaccine? So in getting their confidence, we got to address some of their concerns about why are they vaccine hesitant? I think it's not just the Asian and Arab American communities, but also other minority groups that have concerns about the current COVID-19 vaccine. It's mostly like they're worried because the vaccine trial is too quick. I mean, it's done within a one year period. I mean, is it effective? Is it efficient? Is it even safe? There's also a lot of distrust about the government's involvement with how the clinical trials have been conducted or whether there was a government involvement or how much involvement does the government was a part of in developing the vaccine. But there's also like individuals who say, is this vaccine appropriate for them? I mean, those are the general concerns, but there's also other barriers that goes with it, but there's a lot of language barriers. A lot of people, older individuals have access problems. They don't have transportations and access to technology. In order for you to register or to get an appointment, I mean, you have to go online and really put in your name in there. And a lot of older individuals are not tech savvy. And that's a big thing. And also religious belief. Now, one of the things that we always practice is we have to, like I said, address the concerns, but also debunking the myths as well as the misconceptions and presenting them with the facts. So if we do that, but we have to do it from what is it that the community is more worried about? Because certain communities may not be worried about one thing, whereas the others is more worried about something than the other. So the debunking of myths and misconceptions has also to be specific to individuals. The next thing is we develop or translate messages. A lot of the messages out there are in English. There's very few Asian Americans and much less sometimes it's non-existent actually in Arab Americans. And we found that about there's not enough translated materials for Arab Americans. Going back to our experience with the flu, we actually translated messages into 13 different languages. And that was helpful And we're starting to work on that with the COVID-19. And one of the best practices that I always tell my students, like, you have to present the data in order for me to trust the information you're giving me. So if we can get the community to understand that vaccine works, 
I mean, I think they have more confidence in receiving it. And we do have data that vaccine works. With COVID-19, it may not be longitudinal data, but we've had data with other vaccines like smallpox, like measles. And it is, you know, it's helpful that every day we have more data. We have real-time data of how this is working. But then it also comes to the messenger. So you have the information and then who's sharing the message. So we'd love to hear about um, your work engaging individuals. Um, I know in the Muslim community, um, you have some examples of that work engaging spiritual leaders such as an imam. What does that type of relationship building involve? We're lucky because the CDS director, Dr. Su Inwu, she's had established relationships with the Muslim community because of her previous project, which is called Healthy Asian American Project. But it is a little bit different with me because I had to establish my relationship with the Muslim community because I'm the new person and they don't know me. So they had to trust me. And from my perspective, I got to learn the culture. I'm Catholic and it's actually we're sort of like in the opposite spectrum. So I have to learn to respect their beliefs. I have to learn to respect their culture. And I have to learn that in order for any activities or in order for any events to be successful, We have to go through the imams because they are actually the communal decision makers. They are sort of like the gatekeepers of the Muslim community. I cannot be a spokesperson for a Muslim community because I'm a female. Mostly it's a male-dominated community and the male are the ones that make the decision. And going back again, the imam had to be involved in making any of the community decision. Has that been a productive relationship with the imam in terms of talking about the vaccine? I I wonder if there are aspects of being able to gather in the mosque that could be sort of a, a motivation point to be able to worship together at some point in the future. Yeah, because when we had the last mass vaccine, it was actually in a mosque. And the imams were there. They were the ones that came and they welcomed us. We had individuals that were registered during the session and they have prayer time. So what happened was there are certain rooms in there. There's room in there where members pray. And it's interesting that after they prayed, they actually had their vaccine because the imams tell them to go and get their vaccine which actually was very successful in that sense. And they were the ones that told us, well, maybe we need more sites because everybody was so happy that they got the vaccine. I mean, I think being in a mosque and following the culture, it was actually, I had to ask permission because when I went inside the mosque, because my group went inside the mosque and every, all of us were wearing our shoes. And when we realized that the people, even the women and men, were take, removing their shoes entering the mosque. So I had to ask them, like, should I remove my shoes? Because I don't want to be disrespectful if this is your place of worship. And they did say that you are okay because we are giving the vaccine and we are there for service. But they do appreciate me asking them, 
I mean, it's carpeted, so it wasn't a problem for me. But that actually helped the relationship a little bit more. Cultural humility, right? We want to ask, not assume. And wondering about the Asian American community, are there any successes that you've seen or obstacles that you had to overcome? The Asian American communities have been very successful in receiving the vaccine. I mean, I don't know if I should be surprised or not because Asian Americans, particularly the older Asian Americans, are usually hesitant to get the vaccine. But I've been to several Asian mass clinics because they were part of our partnership. And I've seen the Chinese American organizations. They've been doing mass vaccines continuously for their community. They're very much engaged in vaccinating their community. And also the Filipino communities, we've had three vaccine sites for the Filipino community. We've had mass vaccines with combined Thai community and Filipino community together so that we can accommodate both schedules and also the numbers so we can make sure that the numbers are there. Now, were there any obstacles in the Asian community? Our first lessons learned, you got to confirm who's coming and who isn't. And we realized that maybe a third of the registrants already had their vaccine. Because when we called them and said, oh, yeah, I already had the shot. Like, okay, lesson number one, we had to confirm who's coming and who's not and who had received the vaccine. So what are some efforts underway to address the gap in vaccine education materials? You had mentioned, you know, language access being a barrier. What are some efforts currently in the works to address that gap? We wanted a lot of the younger generations to really get vaccinated. And a lot of them are on social media. So we use social media a lot. We're looking into actually using social media influencers as one of our messengers. There's actually one study that I know of that utilized social media influencer in health promotion. And the study said using social media influencers reach a lot of people. So if one social media influencer, let's say, if I locate a Filipino social media influencers, they reach 900 people. That's a lot more than us having a training or having an educational face-to-face session. So if we identify right now, we're actually scheduled to train trusted messengers. So we're training them in a sense that we're providing them the knowledge of how to relay messages to their community. And it's more about specifics for their community rather than a general information. And we do help them decide what message would you like your community to receive. So even though we translate the message or we ask someone to translate the message, we give it back to the community and say, would this translation or would this message be okay? We know from what we've heard and seen through the COVID-19 pandemic, the Filipino nurses community has been especially hard hit both as frontline providers as well as experiencing disproportionate rates of COVID-19. How do you see that impacting 
Filipinos interested in entering the nursing profession um, related to recruitment or retention? How are Filipino nurses handling stress at this time? The Filipino community actually realized what you mentioned. We were hard hit with COVID. And there's actually an initiative or there's a study that's being conducted by the Philippine Nurses Association looking at Filipino nurses' experience with COVID. And four of my Filipino colleagues are going to be embarking on a new research study in the summer about pandemic fatigue and also about experience with discrimination. And I think the Filipino community, I mean, we're a tight-knit community and also we're very religious and spiritual. And a lot of the Filipino communities rely mostly on spirituality and religion and their faith in order to stay positive. And I think because of that background, we've actually helped each other a lot. We've had a few conversations. There's some listening sessions with several organizations just to see how everybody else is doing around the country. And there's still a lot of things that needed to be done, not just with the Filipino, but with all the nurses. Does COVID-19 deter us from becoming a nurse? I think it's the opposite. I think uh, a lot of People now wanted to become nurses, become frontliners, doctors, paramedics, because of how the frontliners, the nurses, the doctors, everybody in the hospital worked during the pandemic. And however people say that nursing is a dirty job because you take care of the bedpans, you take care of everything... But in the, at the end of the day, it's very fulfilling that you've helped people get better or that you've helped someone die with dignity, especially with COVID-19. So I think the respect for nurses and other frontline workers has changed tremendously. As you look back on the past year, how do you think these experiences are going to shape your approach to healthcare, your practice, as well as healthcare delivery more broadly in the future? I don't think I'm going to change the way I practice because of this. It's just becoming more cognizant of what's going on. And I've always followed one of my favorite theorists, Sister Calista Roy, is the adaptation model. And I always have that propensity to be able to adapt in a situation And it's ironic that actually one of my students at the evaluation, she actually sent me a note or evaluated and said, I wish more faculty will be as proactive as you in switching our class into online because I actually switched the class online after spring break because I realized that, okay, this is from my knowledge of epidemiology, and how infectious disease is. I made that decision. So I told them, like, well, you know, I don't know how safe it is for us to be in a classroom. And I had like 30 students and the room is tight. So I said, well, I'm going to switch you guys into online. And from that time, after a week or two, we switched to online. And 
based on that, I don't think I'm going to change my practice. I'm just going to be probably a lot more cognizant of what's going on around me. Now, how will this pandemic shape the healthcare system? Well, I think it's an eye-opener to the healthcare system. I don't think anybody was prepared for a pandemic. So this is going to be a lessons learned for most, if not all, of the healthcare systems around the world. I mean, it's disaster preparedness. This may not be what we technically call a disaster, but it is a pandemic. We were not prepared. Nobody was prepared for a pandemic. Technically, it is a disaster. So they will have to go back and see what worked and what didn't work. And they need to prepare themselves for situations like this. It may not be a pandemic next time. It could be bioterrorism. In the state that we are in, it could be other forms of disaster. We may not be hit by a pandemic in the next 100 years, but there are other disasters that may come around. So everybody has to be prepared. There has to be a disaster preparedness amongst them. And one of the other things that is going to probably change is telehealth. Before COVID-19, telehealth was kind of like a buzzword. A lot of the institutions like, yep, telehealth is good. We'll start doing telehealth. But majority of the health institutions did not have infrastructures for telemedicine or telehealth. So I think it will be one of the things that healthcare systems and healthcare providers will have to embrace. It's not going to go away. And patients actually said they prefer sometimes seeing their doctors using telehealth because they don't need to go to their office, especially if they don't have any symptoms for follow-up. I mean, if you don't have any symptoms that is pressing, and if just a general follow-up or for a refill of medication, you could just meet with your doctor via telehealth. So I think telehealth is here to stay. I just wanted to tell everybody that, well, COVID-19 is still here. I mean, let's do our job, let's do our part, get vaccinated. It helps, it saves lives. Thank you so much for joining us on At The Core Of Care. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. And finally, we're going to hear from two nurses who are building vaccine confidence in their communities. Opiyemi Oguni will share her experience navigating vaccine hesitancy with patients at her hospital outside Houston, Texas, and what she's hearing from friends and family in Lagos, Nigeria, where she's from. And then we'll hear from Raglita Laput, a community health nurse in Michigan. She's a director of clinical services for a home care program. And in her spare time, Raglita is the current president of the Philippine Nurses Association in Michigan and has been active in helping organize community-based vaccination events. My name is Opiyemi Oguni. I'm a registered nurse in Houston, Texas. I work in a local hospital. Right now, I'm in the medical surgical unit. I'm from Nigeria. I've been in the U.S. I came into the country 2010, so this will be my 11th year. Where I came from is a big community, which is Lagos, 
is in the western part of Nigeria. Before even going into nursing, I have a degree. I finished my bachelor's in biochemistry. So getting in here, I was planning on, okay, since I have my bachelor's in biochemistry, why don't I do like some master's in biochemistry? I stayed with my uncle, who also was a, a nurse. So seeing him impact lives day to day made me to change my career part from biochemistry into nursing. COVID is something that has affected not just me, but my family. We're trying to create awareness for the vaccination because where I come from, Nigeria. Most people did not believe that COVID existed. They thought it was all a lie. Not until later last year to this year when people were passing away and they found out that some of the symptoms were related to COVID because most of the symptoms of COVID, they believed that it was malaria. So they never believed that it was COVID. They thought it was just like a made up term from the US. One of my aunts that was hit by COVID, this person is very vibrant. She does things for herself. She didn't have any issue of COPD or something, but she had to depend on oxygen. So it was really, really bad. We even thought we were going to lose her, but we thank God that it never happened that way. So that's got me really worried about COVID. She noticed that he was just coughing day in, day out, and just wondering, oh, maybe it's just an ordinary cough. She went to the doctor. The first doctor she went to said, oh, it's just malaria. He gave her like anti-malaria medication. And still, that never made it better. So it was until she went to um, the second doctor, which is a teaching hospital. And that's when they found out that it was COVID. So right now, she is even more getting like, she's precautious more than even in the healthcare field. But right now she's doing much better. She told me, because I speak to her every day, she told me that right now she's off the oxygen. So she's pretty much in a good state. She's back to work too. I work in a unit which is designated as COVID. Basically you educate them. You keep on educating them and their family because some people think that after they get COVID, they can receive the vaccination, which is not true. It's just to prevent them going getting to the stage of the hospital and also preventing reinfection too, which they found, they understood and went through the route of getting vaccinated. After experiencing this pandemic firsthand and also being a patient because <laughs> I just had a baby too. So <laughs> I think it's very much going to change the face of healthcare in the future. There's going to be pretty much more of the televisits in terms of primary care. It was occurring before, but this pandemic made it more pronounced. Especially with nurses, the community look up to us in terms of what we put out there. We're almost like, like a guide. So that says a lot on the role of a nurse in the art of a patient. So we need to be more knowledgeable. We need to keep a more aware of our surroundings, aware of what's going on in the news, in the community, society, in the world at large.
My name is Reglita Laput. I am the president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Michigan. I am also working as a director of clinical services in home care. I love to care for people, so I decided to take up nursing. When I was a student, I really loved my experience in community health nursing. So I thought that I might as well focus on being a community health nurse or a public health nurse. I feel that life is fulfilling when you have helped others. So I am very willing to do an extra mile just to be of help to others. It is very fulfilling that you have shown your love, you have shown your service to the community and to the world in general. As a community health nurse working in home care, I tried as much as possible to educate our patients to be vaccinated and also our therapists, our nurses. But I also work with the communities and I really tried to show to them the magnitude of the problem. First, I will ask, how are you now? How do you feel about this situation now? Something like that. And I touch the heart. And I will also show to them the implications of the pandemic. It's our families are affected. We cannot show our relationships even to our friends and to our families. We cannot hug anymore. But this is not normal. So what I do is I try to do a heart-to-heart -heart talk and in a voice that shows really that you are concerned and explain to them that, this is how it is. If we're not going to put an end to this, many of our, even our families will be affected. Many will die. We have to wear the mask. We have to observe social distancing. And all this all combined together, we will be able to stop this virus. But most importantly, we have to get ourselves be vaccinated. You are protecting yourself and you are protecting your family, you are protecting others. So let's get ourselves be vaccinated. Of course, there are some people who are quite reluctant to be vaccinated. But when I talk to them, I would say, you are concerned that it will have side effects on your body. But think of the benefits it will give to your body rather than the side effects. The benefits outweighs your fear of side effects. Even with your first dose, you feel something, it means that the vaccine is working. Your antibody is, <laughs> is giving a light, oh, this is something foreign to my body. So that is good. I said, that is good. It means the vaccine is working. Your body is reacting, producing the antibodies. We have to work together for this common goal. Our goal is to really to have herd immunity. What I would like to let our communities or even for the world to know is that we can all together stop this virus if we will work all together. We are going to stop this uh, pandemic.
This project was funded in part by a cooperative agreement with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services. The contents of this resource do not necessarily represent the policy of CDC or HHS and should not be considered an endorsement by the federal government. For more information about related upcoming webinars and where to find COVID-19 resources, log on to nurseledcare.org. And in case you missed any of our previous episodes, you can always go back and find them wherever you listen to podcasts. In the meantime, definitely continue to stay up to date with us on social media at Nurse Led Care. At the Core of Care is produced by Stephanie Marudas and Emily Previty of Cuvenda Media and mixed by Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us.